You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Brian Belovich is an author, actor, and mental health professional. He was a featured guest on the Moth Storytelling Hour on NPR related to his memoir, Transfigured, My Journey from Boy to Girl to Woman to Man, which was published in 2018. In 2019, Brian was named one of the 50 most influential LGBTQ authors of all time by Barnes & Nobles, and he participated in the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Gay Pride Parade in New York City. Brian was also the subject of a documentary film that made its world premiere at Doc NYC. It's titled, I'm Gonna Make You Love Me, and was directed by Karen Bernstein. Most recently, Brian holds a master's degree in mental health counseling, and he plans to use his lived experience as a cis gay man of trans experience to help others who are exploring their own identity journeys. As a longtime survivor of HIV, Brian lives proudly as an out gay man advocating on behalf of the LGBTQ community. We start today all the way back in Brian's childhood. He was always a feminine and flamboyant kid, and his parents and brothers ostracized him severely for it. He tells us about his complicated relationship with his family, and early on, beginning to live a life full of risks, adventures, and self-sabotage. In New York in the 1970s, Ryan was living through a whirlwind of drugs, nightclubs, prostitution, and drag shows. He couldn't really find his place as a feminine gay man, and the pull towards creating a beautiful, seductive new self as a woman became too strong to withstand. Brian transitioned to Tish and embarked on new trans adventures, both enriching and destructive. Tish even married an army soldier and tried to settle down in a domestic housewife role that Tish thought was expected of women. Only after getting sober did Tish realize that trans identity was becoming a dead-end pathway, leading either to bottom surgery or, as Brian now puts it, death. So as the fog of addiction cleared, and with the help of a supportive therapist, Tish decided to re-transition to Brian. There are a lot of adult themes discussed today, so please be mindful of who's listening, and enjoy our discussion with Brian Belovich. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. We are so happy to have Brian Velovich on the show. Welcome, Brian. Hello, uh, Sasha. Hi, Stella. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. That's that's really nice of you to join. Um, I would love to give the audience members almost like a chronological introduction to who you are if they have not read your book or heard of you. So would you be able to start maybe with a little bit about your childhood and then kind of lead us up to um, where we are at today? I know that you've had a very rich and interesting life. So can we start in childhood? Well, uh, certainly. Um, I, I am, uh, I was one of seven kids I'm the third born, and uh, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. 
Um, probably in 1961, I was about five years old. So uh, it was a very different time uh, to be a child of questionable gender identity. <laughs> and um, I got a lot of, uh, uh, what's the word? I got a lot of um, different reactions from people as a, as a young child. I was very uh, pretty. I was uh, misgendered. Uh, a lot uh, by uh, people that didn't know me. Um, I had a thick mop of dark curly hair and big long eyelashes and uh, my voice was high and I, you know, people often mistake me for a girl. And uh, my mother was, my mother's reaction was always, you know, she was always horrified when this would happen and she would correct people um, and say, well, it's a he, not she. And she would get really annoyed um, with people when they made that mistake. So growing up as a, I guess if I was a five-year-old today, I might be considered a trans kid. You know, I would be, you know, they would have terminology or some, way to describe, you know, my uh, identity. Um, but back then, that wasn't even the word that existed. I mean, we had, you know, it was, it would be a while before we even understood what the word transsexual meant. So, um, so this caused me an incredible amount of anxiety and confusion as a little boy. And, uh, you know, I, I've said in other interviews, I, of, I often thought it was great that I was different. You know, I always thought it was a positive thing that I was, you know, um, not like everyone else. And it was only until later on when I got a little older that those qualities that I uh, thought were really great about myself were turned against me to make me feel like there was something wrong with me. And so I internalized a lot of the negative feelings that people had reacting to my gender as a little pretty little boy um, and uh, inherently came to understand, you know, deep within myself that, well, if, if what they're saying is true about me, then I must be the wrong gender. I must be, you know, there must have been some kind of mistake. You know, and I'm not a religious person at all. I'm spiritual, but not religious. But I often, you know, back then, you know, we, you know, I would think, oh, well, well, you know, God doesn't make mistakes, you know, at least the little bit of knowledge I had about God. But Anyway, so when I was old enough to act on this uh, uncomfortable um, feeling I had about my gender, I did. And, uh, you know, I got it from, you know, it, it was, you know, my family is pretty like working class, you know, somewhat educated, not the most brilliant minds. Not bad people, but just a little bit uneducated around, you know, um, these type of things. 
So there was a lot of fear from them that they projected onto me about not being a, this rough and tumble sort of macho kid, you know, following along the lines of, you know, what they did. I have five brothers. They're all like very masculine, tall, like six foot. I mean, several, a couple of them were prize fighters, you know, very involved in sports. And somehow at an early age, I just rejected that. I didn't, I, 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 I found it really distasteful, I guess is the word, you know, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't sort of feel right to me. And so that further caused uh, a wedge in our relationships and it caused more, excuse me, anxiety and more, you know, feeling of, you know, a lot of, a lot of trans folks talk about feeling other, you know, other than, so it was just something that I carried all through my early development as a, as a, as a, as a, a younger, young boy and well into my teens. And, uh, you know, I also knew early on that I wasn't attracted to girls and that I would develop crushes on boys. And uh, that was very confusing for a little kid that was not in any kind of a supportive environment to embrace that or explore that or, you know, understand um, what that was. There were no role models really for us. I mean, we had, you know, the, the TV role models that we had back then. I mean, my brother, my oldest brother uh, would think nothing of like teasing me constantly, you know, uh, calling me, you know, Liberace or, um, you know, uh, Mary Poppins or, you know, um, Neil Sedaka was another sort of a gay sort of pop star at the time, you know, Paul Lint, you know, so he would think nothing of like teasing me and calling me those names. And so um, there really wasn't a lot of sensitivity around people's uh, individual journey, you know, um, and then, and then, you know, as I wrote, I write a lot about this in the book, you know, it was a really rough coming out. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I've had, do it three times but the first time you know was really rough i you know my, my my parents rejected everything about me being gay and then later trans um they they could not wrap their heads around it at all and they didn't want anything to do with it brian can i can i ask you a question about this because i'm um, i'm thinking about in the book you talk about like some of your early sexual experiences with with guys and from the beginning there was rather than for example like having a a relationship with a boy and there's like this mutual uh desire and mutual respect and mutual love like some of your early sexual experiences with guys had a kind of exploitative quality to them in that you were so so young and you were not treated with a lot of respect or dignity and i wonder did those experiences contribute to like or i guess compile on top of the rejection that you felt from your family about 
not only your femininity, but being gay, like, how did those experiences impact whether or not you could settle comfortably into like, I am a feminine gay boy, because because it seems like you touched on that for a brief time. I know that you had your friend, Polly, who was very loving and warm, but then quickly you moved into no, I'm not a feminine gay man. I want to actually explore womanhood in and of itself. And I'm just wondering if your early experiences you think played a role at all or contributed to the discomfort you felt in your sexual identity. Well, absolutely, they did, uh, 100%. And I think that that's a really important point that you're raising um, because these experiences we have as children, they're all valuable um, uh, and and they all somehow inform us in ways sometimes we don't even know how they inform our identities as we mature and grow older. Um, and so I was, inc- you know, I came from an incredibly homophobic, you know, I mean, transphobic, that wasn't a word back then, but they were definitely transphobic, homophobic, racist. You know, I came from really fearful people. And like I said, they weren't bad people, but they were fearful. And that fear is, you know, it's contagious. And so you you inherently, um, uh, you know, learn at a very early age, you get just get this really solid message that because you're not falling in line with the heteronormative lifestyle. You're not married. You're not interested in dating and having kids and, you know, having what's considered the, you know, the uh, usual, I won't say normal because I wouldn't, wouldn't say that that's the, the standard normal. That's not the standard for normal. Um, in my eyes anyway. Um, but you know, uh, it, it, it was absolutely influenced. You know, I hated the fact that I was going to be the thing that my parents, my brothers, my sister, teachers, um, everyone, you know, hated, you know. So there's a lot of self-hatred and a lot of homo- internalized, I guess the word is internalized homophobia early on you know, um, that I developed. So I, I hated the idea that I was going to be gay. And it was almost as if I was looking for an excuse to, to not be gay. You know, um, you know, I, I think, I think my, I'm in some weird way. My mom was, when she eventually got around to accepting me as her daughter, she was happier that I wasn't, a you know, a homosexual, you know, or the other, you know, derogatory terms. I won't use it here, but. So, so she was more homophobic than she was, as you say, it wasn't in existence, but that she was transphobic. Yeah. That, that overrode it. And, and those, those kind of sexual experiences that were exploitative, do you feel that was, I've, I've, I, I'm just saying it because I've met other people who feel it was their only way to be gay was to be exploited, if you follow me, it, it kind of something like that. I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but sometimes I've I've seen people, it's almost like their gateway into 
sexual experiences, gay sexual experiences, are sometimes very rocky? Well, a lot of mine were not consensual to begin with, so that that leaves a mark. <laughs> that leaves a very, you know, um, shaky uh, foundation to begin with. So, you know, my early sex, earliest sexual experiences, even when I was willing to do it on my own, they were they were in bathrooms with older men. They were, you know, in parks and you know, hidden and, you know, secretive. And so, you know, all of that stuff just, it just adds fuel to the fire that was already lit by, you know, your early development. And so, um, you know, uh, they weren't positive, loving, meaningful relationships. And I'd already had been in a family of like, as I mentioned earlier, I was, I was in a family of seven my parents were divorced, so any kind of energy or any kind of attention you received, you had to really fight for it in my family. Um, so, it, you know, it wasn't, the model just wasn't, the model was broken from the beginning. So it was like, you know, um, and that's how I felt most of my early adult life and well into my adult life as a trans person, broken, and um, something was wrong with me, and uh, it was up to me to try to figure it out. And because people, you know, and the other thing about this that's really interesting you is that when you don't have a very strong sense of identity, whether who, whoever you are, myself included, it, from the beginning, you know, it, in my case, it led to me being incredibly um, malleable or sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a karma chameleon kind of. Easy, easily influenced, you know, because I had no self-esteem. So if you thought something I did was great, I was going to do it. You know, because that meant that, oh, you you really liked me. You really thought that I was doing something that you liked. And so it just was like a false sense of security. So you were impressionable and vulnerable. And yeah. vulnerable, yes. And I find that to be true of a lot of, you know, people that I talk to about, you know, this kind of stuff. You also talk in the book a lot about the time um, when you were uh, meeting Polly. And I'm trying to go chronologically. I was about to skip ahead. But Polly was like your first gay male friend who showed you a lot of genuine love and affection. You weren't in a romantic relationship with Polly, but you guys were very, very close emotionally. And I just, I'm always interested in the impact of like, who's the first person who really accepts you for who you are? Because I think those are pivotal moments in a young person's life, particularly. So can you just talk a little bit about Polly? I know Polly has passed away and maybe just talk a little bit about the significance that Polly and his mom played in your life. Well, that's, that's uh, really true, you know, that, uh, you know, up until that point in my life, I hadn't really been seen by anybody. 
I mean, I guess I'd been seen physically, obviously, I'm not a ghost, but uh, I hadn't been seen in, in, in the way that someone could really appreciate, you know, who I was as a person. They, Paul, Paulie really uh, brought out the best in me. He really appreciated my intelligence. He appreciate, appreciated my sense of humor. He appreciated my kindness, my, uh, my curiosity, my, uh, my sense of adventure and fun. You know, he really was the first person that validated the good things about myself. Um, up until that point, there wasn't, maybe there was one other mentor in, in junior high school. I had a librarian who was very kind to me, um, and sort of kind of took me under her wing. Um, she probably sensed there was a lot of, uh, I needed a lot of care at that point in my life. And she was very kind to me. So she was another person, but not at, not of the impact and, uh, you know, um, the depth that Paul, uh, and also he was also gay. So he was also effeminate. He was also pretty. He was, you know, and he was not ashamed of it. You know, he really, his, his mother, Gloria, who is still my friend, she's just turned 95 years old last week. Um, she always said that Paul was very much himself. He was always who he was and didn't care what other people thought about him and, and, and had a very strong sense of confidence and things that he wanted to do. And up until that point, I didn't know anything about what I liked or didn't like or what was possible. So he really, really instilled this sense of confidence in me that I never had uh, prior to meeting him. And also this, this like was like looking in a mirror, you know, you're like, you're getting validated because there's someone like you and, and he wasn't trans, but he dressed in drag. He was effeminate and flamboyant and outrageous and was just comfortable with it. Could I ask what, uh, what year were you born and what age were you when you met Paul Lee so that we kind of get an idea of, of, you know, the era I was about 16. I was about 16 years old and I was about to turn 17. And my parents had kicked me out of the house. My mother kicked me out of the house. And Paul took me home with his mom and to meet his mom and he said you're going to come and stay with me and my mother. And and uh she opened the door and she took one look at me and and she's she's also said in interviews she said I took one look at you and I thought, oh, God, he's so beautiful. He should just have been born a girl. <laughs> and they welcomed me into their home and I stayed with them and I, I never went back. I mean, I went back many years later to live with my mom uh, in, the, uh, in my 20s, but never went back after that. And when you say you saw, almost you saw yourself, you saw, you looked in the mirror and he was a flamboyant gay man, you know, drag queen. You, you, you frame it like you were seeing yourself and yet you were, you kind of almost are leading us to say, and you saw yourself as a trans woman while he was a gay man. Or are, am I misreading you there? 
No, I mean, I still was struggling with this idea. You know, the other thing, the other part about this I want to mention is that we also were very young and we were doing drag. So we were dressing in drag and it was, for him, it was more performative and it was more costumey and, you know, let's be shocking and, and, and be outrageous and get attention. But for me, it took on a completely different um, a meaning. <clears throat> and I began to get more acceptance dressing in drag than I did as Brian, as a boy. So, so here I was getting validated for not being this effeminate boy, but this amazing like creature that I was creating in drag. And uh, it became like drugs to me. It became very addicting. And, um, you know, even at one point, I, I think I write, I don't know if I wrote this in the book. I think it's in the book. I, 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 I wrote about like, well, Paul, whatever Paul thought was a good idea, I just went along with it because I always thought he knew better than me. And um, he said to me when we left Rhode Island to move to New York, Okay, let's get rid of all this drag business and let's be men. Let's be gay. And so here we are, too. Like, I was barely 18. He's, he, we, he was a year older than me. We go to New York. Uh, I grew a beard. I started trying to be butch and macho. And, like, it was the 70s. So I was trying to fit in with this macho man kind of thing. It didn't last. It lasted maybe a few months and then I was shaving and tweezing and plucking and dressing again and going out and drag again. And, um, and then shortly after that, I started to really transition, taking hormones, um, changed my name legally and started my path to transitioning, you know? So, so the other message I was receiving then was I wasn't even good enough to be gay. You know, I, I wasn't good enough to, I, I couldn't even be gay because no one wanted an effeminate gay boy. They wanted, you know, muscly, macho, you know, I have my own theory about that. Um, with What is this? Well, I think that, you know, people that do drag, they have a lot of, a lot of uh, the same feelings, you know, around, you know, it being a shameful thing, like uh, uh, at least during the time that I grew up, maybe it's changed a little bit now, but, you know, there's this sense that if you're a drag queen or if you're a feminine boy, that you're not worth having a relationship with, or you're not someone that you want to date. And so it was very challenging to find love as a person who was not only begin doing drag, but also beginning to transition um, to a female identity. And uh, it's, it's, it was challenging. Do you remember making a decision to, to transition and was it difficult to start the transition process? No, it wasn't. I mean, I mean, it, what was difficult about it was other people's reaction like my family rejected me, I ended up taking a, 
I ended up having a suicide attempt uh, when I went home to Rhode Island after leaving New York with a new name and hormones and, you know, starting electrolysis and, and going back to my hometown and being rejected by my family. Um, they didn't welcome me with open arms. And so um, it was devastating to me. And I, I took an overdose of, of Valium and was drinking vodka. I was in a coma for like 72 hours, 19 years old. The, the other part of this, there's no psycho, uh, psychology, there's no therapy, there's no peer counseling, there's no, no one, you know, no one looking after my best interests. <laughs> you know, that didn't exist back then. There was no, I had no awareness at all of any of that stuff. So this is all, all, all these life-changing decisions I was making. I mean, that's a, that's a positive thing today. At least we have that, you know, we do have some, some, uh, awareness of like the, the things that are available for people today, but I didn't have any of that. And you didn't get any counseling when you said you wanted to get hormones or, no, mm-mm, mm-mm. Oh. no, I went to a doctor and he, I wasn't even, I, I think I was like 16 or uh, I, I, I even started like taking Premarin at like 17 years old. And I went to the doctor, I told him I was old, older than I was, and he gave me prescriptions for Premarin and I started to grow small breasts. No questions asked. And there was a place on the Lower East Side in in, in um, New York when I was living in New York in the village. I went with another with another trans friend who I'd befriended, and she took me and we went into the office and paid the ten dollars. And there was an office full of other trans folks and pull your pants down, stick you with the needle, and bye. See you later. <laughs> ten bucks. And how did you feel when you started the transition pro- process? Well, it was it was. It was exhilarating at first because I thought, oh, wow, I'm really on the path to uh, finding happiness. It was all about like being happy. Like I thought that this was going to make me happy. This was going to solve all my problems. And that's one of the things that I want to say to you both is that that's not true. It's a myth. And this is what I, this is one of the reasons why I started to do this work and become an advocate and sort of be, uh, became a a therapist myself because, you know, I worry that kids get the idea, young people get the idea that they think that this is going to solve all their problems because I really believe that. I did, I really believe that, oh, become and and the other thing about me that people can't see cuz they're not they're not this is not a visual thing but in my book you can see you know I had passing privilege I was beautiful I was considered beautiful I was 9 times out of 10 people did not know uh, and if I could come in I think you know the fact is you had as you call it passing privilege you could pass and you know the big argument for 
for childhood transition, especially, for example, for males, is, well, uh, it's too hard to pass when you've become a man and tried to transition as a woman. You, you, we need to do it earlier so that they can pass easier. You could pass. You you passed. And that wasn't your issue. What, what were your issues? Because you were quite definitive saying, I was exhilarated. I thought this was going to be happiness. I was on the road. When did it start to falter? How soon? And where, what were the issues that arose? Well, a lot of a lot of the the externals were there, but the externals didn't match the internals. So, like my my deep seated feeling of self hatred never went away. So as long as I kept piling on, you know, getting more beautiful, getting larger breasts, getting more attention, getting more lovers, getting more success as a singer and an actor or whatever I was thought I was doing, even marrying, I married a soldier I married, I was a, you know, I was the, the epitome of like, you know, uh, uh, American, uh, I guess it's a stereotypical thing now because of feminism and everything, but you know, many women probably thought of like, oh, I could marry a handsome soldier and be a beautiful, loving wife, and you know. So I did all those things, but not everything that I did didn't erase the feeling that I had deep down, which was instilled in me at a very early age, that there was something inherently wrong with me. So no matter how many things I piled on to it, and eventually, you know, I don't want to get ahead of the story here, but eventually that was the thing that really got me in the, in the end where I decided, you know, I'm 30 years old. I've done all this stuff. Society does not accept me. Men don't accept me. People in the straight world don't understand me. People in the gay world don't understand me. They don't accept me. You know, they they ridicule me behind my back, sometimes in front of my face. You know, they don't... It, it, it was just so much emotional baggage to carry. After being so successful, if you looked at me, you would never imagine that there was this turmoil. You know, it's a classic case of, you know, many, many addicts and alcoholics have this condition, you know, this, this feeling of, you know, restlessness and irritability and discontent, you know, their whole lives and use drugs and alcohol to, to, you know, soothe themselves or other ways to soothe themselves. But it wasn't until I went into into therapy that I really started to examine, you know, what did I think about being male? No one had ever asked me that question. This amazing woman asked me this question. And I was like, you know, I'm almost 30 years old and no one has ever asked me like, well, why, what, what do you think? What do you, what are your feelings about? what it is to be female. What are your feelings? What do you believe? What are your belief systems about what it is to be male? I mean, this was radical to me back then. Um, and I never, I never really questioned it. And so 
when I did, I started to realize that I have the best of both. You know, I can be very feminine when I want to. I can be very masculine when, when I want to. I don't have to be either or. And that really opened up, you know, the whole uh, world to me when it came to, like, my own inner peace. Uh, it, it made me feel like, for the first time, that I wasn't broken. There wasn't anything wrong with me. You know, and that little kid, I, I, I was like, a, you know, it, just meeting that little kid again and taking him and loving him and accepting him and giving him all the support and love and care that he never had as a little boy. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Yeah, we call that reparenting, when you're able to kind of turn towards your younger self and give that person the care and compassion yeah. and understanding that you didn't have. And that's very beautiful. And it was lovely to read in your story about this therapeutic process with Aaron, with your therapist. Um, and, and you are now a mental health professional. Can, can you, uh, I, I want to go back to some aspects of your story, but since we're here, can you talk a little bit about how did your relationship with your therapist change things for you? You talked about realizing that you have the best of both worlds and your therapist also helped you, uh, develop some really important habits and coping coping mechanisms which you didn't have because you were really struggling with a lot of self-destructive behavior and drug use and unhealthy sexual relationships and we we I'd love to talk a little bit about that and how therapy changed things for you and sobriety well I was really lucky I I really feel like I I I you know, um, what was really fascinating about this therapist is that she was orthodox. And I'd never met an orthodox person before. So our relationship started with, like, who is this person? You know, she wore, you know, she wore, a, you know, the traditional, I mean, she dressed contemporary, but I knew she, and I, and I asked her one time, you know, about like her hair, like, why, why are you wearing a wig? And she explained it to me, like how, and so, so there was this really incredible element of trust that I had with this person, um, because she was other to me. So I looked at her as like, wow, this is, she, she must have had, had a really difficult life in in this society. So I think that was one of the things that we really bonded over was our otherness. 
Can I ask as well, I know I'm weaving back and forth, but when you were married and you said you were like almost a traditional army wife, um, were you living like in the in the trans gay world or were you living the conventional army? And did many people know you were, you, you, I know, tell the listeners, you're answering. No, me. no, <laughs> no one them. knew. No, no one knew. I had no, no one knew uh, when I lived in Germany. Um, I mean, if they suspected, they, they never said anything, but I was going to the, to the PX and shopping with the wives and having parties and, you know, we had little, you know, sleepovers. And uh, when the husbands went away, we would get together and watch, you know, TV and play games and play cards. And, you know, it was very traditional. And my husband was very traditional. And you were you were bored out of your mind. Yes, I mean, I you was. were used to this party life. I was. And you also, I mean, you're an actor. We barely talked about this, but you're also a theatrical, outgoing, expressive person. And this wife life <laughs> bored you to death and you did you have an affair you almost had an affair like you were really jazzed up by the idea of seduction I mean this was a really interesting aspect of your story too yeah I was I was not faithful to my husband so you know I had the the GIs were chasing me around the base all the time I mean they were always and, and and it was dangerous you know, but I never considered the consequences because I was stoned most of the time. I was really smoking a lot of hash and drinking. I was drinking a lot of German beer. And, you know, uh, I, I, I really wasn't very conscious of like, I mean, I kind of knew that I had to be cool about, you know, who I let know. Um, but there were many, many men that I had to like, oh, no, no, I'm married. I, I can't do that. I, you know, I wouldn't do that to my husband because these guys would have probably killed me. You know, it was very, very dangerous. I mean, I lived. That's the other thing. You know, there was an there's an element of 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 danger in my story that I it wasn't until I wrote it and then we recalled all of the incidences where I took those risks of not telling my partners that I was trans. And they didn't figure it out. No, no, no. Especially during sex work on, you know, when I worked on the street and I was doing, you know, jumping in and out of cars and, you know, um, doing quickies, you know, um, in the car. But no, I mean, uh, uh, when I think I'm horrified saying it right now to you both, when I think of how many times that I could have been like, there's, there's a story that didn't make it in the book. I jumped in the car with three young boys, young, young men, and I never told them. And they took me to this dark, deserted place and they wouldn't give me the money. And they wanted, you know, they were getting like really, uh, uh, aggressive with me and wanted me to, you know, perform things for them. And, uh, I managed to get away from them, but they, they, they probably would have, if they found out, they probably would have killed me. I would have been left for dead in that dark, deserted, uh, place in Queens where they, they drove me out. I got in the car and I couldn't could I noticed the handle was broken 
in the car, so I couldn't get, I couldn't get out of the car. The handle was. God, that's yeah. so scary. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you kind of jumped from the from you know Germany over to sex work without, without telling us how. I'm kind of conscious of listeners who, who might not have a, not a great segue. <laughs> yeah, it was a swift turn left. But also, um, did you get sex reassignment surgery? And no, no. And yet, you're saying people didn't figure it out. No, I didn't have I I didn't have bottom surgery. Okay. I was pre-op, pre-operative. Stella's trying to understand the mechanics of how somebody you're having sex with would not know. <laughs> Only oral sex. And you're saying the risk you took was that if they tried to push tried for further, to, yes, oh yes, God, there wasn't that there is was, such a risk. Yeah, there was one incident um, in 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 Washington Square Park where I was with these two drug dealers, and they thought they were going to get vaginal sex for giving me drugs, and they pulled out a knife under the stairs in over by uh, NYU University. And luckily, I got away. Luckily, I got away from them. Oh but they, they would not have been happy. And tell me, well, how did you move from the the army base to, to sex work? What what what? Where are the steps? If you don't mind me asking, I don't think those were the steps. I think sex no. work predated Germany. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I did. I was doing sex work as a teenager. Okay. As a boy. As mm. as a. 14 year 14 15 years old I was already doing sex work hustling mm-hmm. and then when I became a trans woman um, most of my up until when I got married then things you know I be, things changed a little bit and I managed to get a few you know jobs again without people knowing I was trans because if they found out you were trans, then you would get fired. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of sex work. Um, after I left my husband, I ended up going back to doing sex work um, as well in my 20s. And throughout that time, there was also so much, like you talked about, drinking and drug use. Like it really seemed like you were in a fog of dangerous behavior. Like throughout the book, I just kept thinking this kid just keeps putting themselves in a ton of danger. And I think you touched on how perhaps one of the factors contributing to that was just like not having a strong sense of self chasing moments of pleasure or validation, you know, and, and it was really interesting because, you know, we, we talked about your experience in therapy and you said something in the book about how only when you got sober, did you start really, really thinking carefully about the role that your identity was playing and almost this like this question about bottom surgery was, I think it seemed like the straw that broke the camel's back. And in a place of sobriety and clarity, you kind of were like, oh, I know that for other people, this doesn't go well. This bottom surgery does not go well. And so what choices do I have? So I'd love to hear about like 
the, the drug use and just being in that fog and then how sobriety impacted you. I thought that was really powerful. And just, it tells me so much about the importance of clarity when we're working with patients or clients in mental health. Like that's so necessary to have clarity before making big decisions. So just touch on those things. Absolutely. I mean, I think that if there's anything I learned, that was the most important thing uh, that I learned in that process is that when you are making decisions based on, you know, not based on emotion, but based on, you know, intelligence and facts and, um, and reality, because up until that point, I was living in a fantasy world. You know, I really was in this fantastical, like I had this unbelievable false idea about like what I thought my life was going to be. And it never worked out that way. I mean, so um, when I got sober in 1986 and entered therapy, um, I, you know, it's it, it was suggested. I mean, it wasn't even anything that I, you know was in my, my consciousness, it was suggested that you take a look at, you know, your, your responsibility in things that you do. And so it's like taking an inventory, like a store would take stock of what it has, what it needs to buy, what it needs to replace. And so when I started to take that inventory of my life, you know, it was shocking. It was a shocking revelation that I realized I done this for all the wrong reasons. As I touched on earlier, you know, I had no sense of self. So if you thought it was a good idea and you liked me for doing it, I did it 10 times more than I could. And so, I mean, it, it, it's pretty simplistic when you think about it, but for someone to come to that idea on their own is very powerful, as you said. You know, it's very... You know, it was like, you know, and, and there was a lot of grief and a lot of, you know, I mean, we're not going to get into all that, but there was a lot of a grieving process, you know, for the life that I, I lost and things that I, this amazing, because Tish, my name was Tish, you know, Natalia Tish. She was this incredible thing that I created and there was a lot of grief and a lot of loss of, of that immediate attention and status and beauty and, you know, things that people really appreciated about her that I had to um, process. So I guess I want listeners to, 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 to realize that when, when people like myself make a decision like this, it's not made like, like the way that I made the original decision. It's made with an incredible amount of of uh of difficulty um you know it, it, it i would say it was even harder than transitioning in the first place because it's it's you know we live in a culture and in a society where you know making a mistake is like the worst possible thing you can do so for someone to admit like hey i went down this path i got a little lost found my way to get back home and I'm telling you, it was, it was a mistake. I, I thought it was going to work out for me, but it didn't. 
People freak out over that stuff. They're not accepting. They're very judgmental. Yeah. And- and very critical of like, yeah. oh, well, you left us. You know, even the trans community, their reaction to me was mm. not, not, not nice. I had a very, a lot. Yeah. You're like a betray, you're betraying or something like a kicked traitor. out of the tribe. And, and people, and this, I want to say this too, this is important. People that like myself, I'm not saying everybody because everybody's different. We can't lump each other into some simple category because this is a very complex issue. But my, I'll speak for myself. Because I didn't want to be trans anymore does not mean that I have bad feelings, feel like trans people are mis- shouldn't do it. You know, that they shouldn't be trained. I mean, that's not uh, people that retransition. That's not, I can say for me, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, that's not part of why we decide to, or I, why I decided to not be trans anymore. I, and then, you know, we talked in the beginning, you said, oh, you're cis gay male of trans experience. I'm never not going to be trans. Hello. I'm never not going to be trans. I'm always going to be someone who was trans. You can't take 15 a year or six months or five years or 10 years, or in my case, 15 years of living a trans life and not be trans. It doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. So I love my transgender friends. Yeah. I love them and 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 appreciate yeah. and and value their experience in ways that many gay or cis people have no idea. I walked in those heels, honey. <laughs> you know, I I was I was a you know, I was there before it was, you know, even understood at all. Yeah. So I know more that's why I I, you know, I love doing this podcast. I love talking about this because, you know, um, it's important that I be an advocate for those who are being discarded or just, dis, dis, what's the word? Um, you know, not taken seriously. Like dismissed. Oh, <laughs> dismissed. 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 Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Discredited. Oh, oh, she, well, yeah. yeah. You know. Could I could I ask you like you call yourself a cis gay man of trans experience, and that certainly took my notice. And you don't, as such, you you don't describe yourself as detransitioned. I'm interested. Why not? I like to use the term retransitioned. Okay. Because I feel like D has a negative. Excuse me. I feel like detransition has a negative connotation, which leads people to think, oh, it didn't work out. So you're going to try something else, you know, whereas retransitioning, reinventing, reimagining my life as something new is is more positive. It's more powerful. It's more impactful to think of myself as like this is another part of my journey. It's another uh, another extension of my life that I'm moving into rather than this fixed, you know, like, oh. Do you think, 
Yeah, no, I, I hear that. And I'm really interested. Do you think you'd feel the same way if you had had bottom surgery and then tried to kind of return to living as a man? Because I think there's there's a really refreshing sense of kind of flexibility and freedom that you're expressing, which I actually think is really important because like you said, people should not feel as though they have made a horrible mistake and have to take everything back. Though there are a growing number of young people who do feel that way. Um, and again, you transitioned in a very different time. But do you think if you had more extensive you know, physical changes, do you think that would have made it harder to have that kind of positive sense of flexibility? I think yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, thank God I didn't, that was an option. And thank God I did not choose that option because that would make, you know, that would make my decision that much more difficult to, uh, to go forward. I mean, I think the physical part of it is, is really important. Um, luckily I was able to reverse a lot of the things that I had done. Um, but that's something that's irreversible. That physical part of your, uh, sexuality, you know, because we're talking about sexuality here, not, not gender, because, you know, you, you're, you know, you're, you know, I, I, I don't know if I could be a gay. Well, I guess there are trans men that are that consider themselves gay with vaginas. So I guess that would be a a, a possibility. Um, but I'm glad I didn't do it. I'm really, you know, I just went to the edge. And you think being a gay man with a vagina would be a a, a very difficult life? Well, I don't, I don't know because I, I don't, I don't, I could, I can't imagine seeing myself, uh, that way. I mean, I, I mean, it, well, to be clear, it would be of a neo vagina, which is a totally different thing than a vagina. It's, it's not the same. Very, thing. very much so. Yeah. It's a totally different, um, different experience. Um, I just want to ask, you say retransition. I know a lot of detrans. I work a lot because of our program Beyond Transition in, in Genspect. We, we work a lot with detransitioners. And so a lot of detransitioners talk about detransitioners, who are people who have reverted to their biological body as such, and they have transitioned and they've gone back to who they once were. And then they call retransition is when they retransition back to becoming trans people maybe they haven't liked living as a detrans person but you don't subscribe to really? that no, yeah well, you know i've thought of that <laughs> i had a feeling I, that we were yeah that's how i, I know thought of like okay well what if i decide to change my mind again i think i'll be end up in the guinness book of world records no some people you know, do for, they detransition uh, no, you would not. There's people who have de and retransitioned yes, far no, more I am, often. <laughs> I am aware of people that have done that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and good for them. You know, I mean, I think good for you. If you're, you know, I think that we need to be really careful about our own. Our, I need to be really careful also about 
my own ideas about what's right for anyone else. Yeah. So just as no one, and this is the thing I tell parents about their kids, you know, if you have a kid and they come to you and they say they think they're trans, just love them and support them as best you can. And they'll figure it out, you know, um, in the same way, no one could have ever talked me out of doing any of these things myself. I had to experience them and I had to learn from them. Um, so I think I need to be, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, it's getting into a, a territory that I don't never want to be in. You know, I don't want to be the arbiter of telling anyone what they should or shouldn't do. Like I am just very, what's the word? Mm-hmm. Not Zen, but I'm very like accepting and loving and caring about wherever you are is where you need to be. And, you know, let's have a conversation about that, you know. Um, and are, are you meeting many in your work as a counselor? Do you meet many young people who are gender questioning? I did. I recently finished my my I worked for the last nine months with middle school and high school kids. And I had a couple of kids that were questioning. They were they, them. They were different, using different pronouns, different names. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was like I felt like I had a 360 moment where I was like not only returning to the scene of the crime of school, because my school oh. years were just horrible, horrendous, hideous, but here I was now as a healer and a person who was doing you know, um, you know, uh, healthcare and coming into with this set of eyes that, you know, not many counselors would have. So it was wonderful. It was just the best. I had a kid, a seventh, seventh grader. I said, so how come I, I, I won't say her name, but I said, so how come, you know, we, we've talked a lot about a, a lot of things. How come we never talk about dating? Are you, are you seeing anybody or do you have any like crushes or she goes, I'm a lesbian. Just like I'm a lesbian. I know I'm a lesbian. I don't like boys. 13 years old. Like that didn't exist when I was in school. I would be like tarred and feathered and chased home and lit on fire. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, your story, like when I was reading your story, what I kept thinking about is the young people I know who even before they have ever had a crush, they have picked uh, some kind of subversive identity label, like 10 year olds that are like, I'm pansexual, agender. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, but the, the level of kind of comfort and nonchalance with which kids talk about these things now was such a painful contrast, like seeing the kind of real abuse that you experienced, like real serious, um, real serious, like violence and aggression and hatred. Like that's what homophobia looks like. That's what transphobia looks like. And it was really powerful to just think about how much things have changed in such a short time. And um, that's why we were kind of curious of whether you're following the developments, because what we're seeing now is something really different and in some ways very positive. And in some ways, very young kids are kind of infatuated with all of these identity labels before they've ever 
held someone's hand, you know, or given someone a kiss or fallen in love. And some of them are rushing into medical interventions, like, like you said earlier, which are irreversible. And they're very, very young and they don't have much life experience. So are you kind of following the ROGD phenomenon? And like, what do you think of what's happening now? It just feels like a totally different world from where you grew up. Yeah, I, I do try to stay on top of it because, you know, it's very important to the work that I do. Um, and um, I don't know what ROGD, what is that? What is that? An, an, an acronym for RO? It's rapid onset gender dysphoria. So it kind of describes the young person who doesn't really have a history of gender nonconformity or gender dysphoria, who kind of comes out in peer groups, for example, like me and all four of my best friends are all coming out as trans together, like describe something that's very, very different from a childhood onset of gender dysphoria. Okay, that's something I haven't heard of. That's interesting. Yeah, I just think that, you know, um, there are two two schools of thought now, you know, in our in our our field. You know, there are those on one side that are uh, erring on the side of caution more and more, um, especially with the HRT, you know, therapy and, um, you know, hormone blockers. You know, um, there are those that are, you know, we're getting a lot more data, which we didn't have before. So I think people are coming to it on one side of 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 uh counseling and therapy and then there's the other side which is okay you're a girl okay i accept that but you can't ask well what does that mean to you you can't i mean if you doing private practice, that's probably a different thing. But if you're in a facility or a school or a, you know, uh, <laughs> a program and you ask those questions, you could lose your job. You know, so you could be, you know, like, oh, why are you asking? Yeah. And, and you're, you're a therapist. Why are you questioning the child's choices? Yeah. Dr. Aaron would have been considered n- not good. Uh, yeah, Dr. Aaron, yeah. You're a therapist. That's right. She would have p- potentially been accused of conversion therapy because she didn't push you to stay trans. So I think, you know, you, you've seen the value of thoughtful, non-biased, exploratory therapy. And that is really, I think, what kids need. And like you said, Brian... She asked you questions nobody had ever asked you before. Yeah. And how valuable were those in helping you develop clarity and self-acceptance, right? So I think it's big deal. It, it, was, it wasn't conversion therapy because it was, you know, the idea that I, there, I wrote it, you know, I talk about this in the book. I, the, the choices were, you know, was I going to stay as a trans woman, preoperative? And what did I think about that? And was I ha- was I going to accept that? Have bottom surgery and try to adjust 
to life living as a trans woman, a transgender woman, or, you know, the third choice was to, you know, do what I did, you know, um, retransition, um, and what that would be like. And the other choice was like suicide. The other choice was like, just die, just kill myself. So it was very, it wasn't, you know, it was my decision. It was not a decision based on someone trying to convince me to do something I wasn't comfortable with. Yeah, I think she sounds like she was a, she was a beautiful therapist. And I think you sound like you were a lovely therapist because there's an openness to what way, you know, a genuine, you're autonomous, you're steering your ship, you know. But I do think what we alluded to there was it's like we have crept from a thera- offering as therapists a therapeutic process to now we are kind of presumed to offer therapeutic support. And actually, they're two different things. Like therapeutic support is more along the lines of Samaritans, where you're nodding along, you're not really getting into the depth of it. You're not offering a, a process which is provoking people to think deeply about who they are and where they want to go. Instead, you're offering some support, which can feel good in the short term, but I would argue it doesn't give the depth that you got from your therapist, Dr. Aaron, like you, you really did seem to kind of get real value from it. And I think therapy is, is losing for that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Amen to that. Yes. I think that, you know, um, I, I was never someone that thought things out, you know, so even just this idea that, we need, I mean, if you're working with young people, you want to have them understand the process, the thought process of having a thought, seeing yeah. what it looks like, where is it going to go, and what yeah. are the possibilities. Included in those possibilities are, are guess what? I would still, if, if I had decided to have bottom surgery and in my mind, thinking that that was going to solve all my problems, that was going to be a problem for me. Thinking that that was the thing that was going to really make everything, make me happy. Yeah. Every decision you took, it was, I think this will make me happy. I think I'll try this. Yeah. 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 And it's so important. I can't stress how important it is having lived it and having lived experience um, around those decisions that we make. Every, every decision we make has pros and cons. You know, the other thing I never imagined, re- becoming gay, when I thought, oh, God, I'm going to be gay. I thought, wow, this is great. I'm going to be gay. <laughs> okay. And then, Guess what? I never thought that as a gay man with trans experience, that that was going to be a problem. I never thought that. I never saw that through. I never thought like, oh, wow, I'm going to get so much pushback and so much like resistance to my beautiful journey of survival and perseverance and 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 service and never saw that coming 
Uh, only only people can folk they can't look at like the whole picture like wow this guy was almost dead this guy was living a life that wasn't worth living this guy was like a like on the fringe of like dying being murdered or dying from drugs or killed you know they don't look at that they look like oh he was trans and he's not trans anymore. What a shame. You see what I'm, what I'm I saying? Do, and I'm just thinking of the chronology. You get, if I'm right, you gave up drugs and then you moved. I was trans when I gave up drugs. Yeah. 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 So you were trans, then you gave up drugs and then you moved beyond trans as such. And you became a gay, what is it? A cis gay man of trans experience. And really, you've settled into who you are now. Is that right? Yeah, 35 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm married. I'm married. I'm, I'm married for 20. I'm in a relationship for 20 years. I'm married. I, I know we're going to have to close up soon, but like, I'm really conscious of you. You grew up. You went through all your hardship. You went here. You went there. You checked out all the corners of your of yourself. And then you came to yourself. And I do think we have to give room for the kind of the recklessness of youth that we try it all. And then we kind of we do get a little bit of sense with our experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank did you. We for... miss, did we miss anything? I don't think so. Is there anything else? Your, your, the name of your book is fabulous. What is it? Transfigured from, from boy to girl to woman to man. My journey from boy to girl to woman to man. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Two words. Transfigured. Figured. Yeah. It's amazing. And I mean, there's so much we didn't get to cover. We didn't get to talk about your acting career and all of these fascinating things, but you really gave us a, an amazing insight into like the complicated twists and turns that a life can take and you can still end up on your feet and you can have a lot of wisdom and, and incredible uh, life experience from that. And it's just a really hopeful place. And I think anyone who's a therapist goes into the field because they believe in that. They believe that people can go through crazy things and learn a lot about themselves in the process. And none of us ends ends up at the end of life kind of unscathed by our youth and our decisions. Um, So it was just fascinating to hear about. So thank you so much, Brian. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, uh, Sasha. That was really beautifully put. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, And listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media. And if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 